easy to assume that any reasonable person observing Israeli soldiers ransacking Palestinian mosques, assassinating Palestinian journalists, and spying on Palestinian children would be shocked and appalled, even if they held their noses at it out of political expedience. But what if Palestine wasn't at all a stain on Israel's reputation as the only democracy in the Middle East? What if, instead, it was a showroom? In the Palestine Laboratory, Australian journalist Anthony Lowenstein presents the West Bank and Gaza Strip as an advertisement for Israel's Leviathan weapons industry, the 10th largest in the world. Israel accepted every single arms deal that was brought to it between 2007 and 2022. Lowenstein sets out how with this unscrupulous approach to arms trading, Israel seeks to win the approval, even cultivate the dependence of other states, including those that claim not to even recognise the country. By forcing itself into the centre of the global military-industrial complex, Israel has made its apartheid regime not only permissible to global powers, but economically, politically and strategically necessary to them, a place where their own tools of repression can be tested in beta mode. As a fellow Jewish lefty and survivor of Zionist indoctrination, it's my pleasure to welcome Anthony Lowenstein to Navarra FM. Thanks so much for having me. So from my perspective, the most frequent metaphor I hear applied to Palestine, particularly the Gaza Strip, is one of an open-air prison. But can you tell us in what sense Palestine is a laboratory? So pretty much since the beginning of Israel, so 75 years now, Israel itself, subsequent leaders, prime ministers, defence ministers, have really viewed Israel as a country that needs to make friends. Now, we can agree or disagree whether that's the right way to behave as a state, but essentially their argument being a lot of the world doesn't like us. This obviously got worse after 1967 when there was the beginning of the occupation, the West Bank, Gaza, um, and elsewhere. And in Israel's thinking, they needed to make friends with pretty much anybody. And in the last 75 years, there is very few countries in the world that I'm aware of that they've never made deals with, at least openly. I can't think of a deal with, say, North Korea. They have dealt with Iran before, but that was before the revolution in 79. The reason I mention all this is that the laboratory began before 1967. There's often, I think, an argument in parts of the left that the problem of Israel and Palestine is the occupation began 56 years ago, and therefore we should assess that. Now, obviously, there are major problems with what's happening in the West Bank and Gaza, of course, which we'll talk about. But Israel was already viewing its experiences with Arabs and how it could be monetized before then, before 67. So between 48 and 67, all the Arabs in Israel itself were under a form of um, uh, martial law. They were not given full equal rights. And some of the tools and technologies and the weapons, both that Israel had used in 48 against the British, and also some of the tools and techniques that they had used between 48 and 67, was something that they were increasingly selling around the world. It massively accelerated after 67, where very quickly after the occupation began, Israel was going around the world, not just looking for friends, but also explaining how they were, in their view, controlling and managing an enemy population, the Palestinians. How was that being done? What methods were being used? And a lot of other countries were desperate for that information. They wanted to also control their own population. The book obviously goes into detail about multiple countries, but the whole idea of it was very much that Israel was seen as world leaders in almost how they told it, in counterinsurgency. There were these unreasonable, crazy Arabs that hated us, so the thinking went. And we have found ways to control them, to manage them, to disarm them. And you have unbelievable amounts of countries, democracies and dictatorships, almost lining up for this advice. Which is why, you know, after 9-11, when there was so much talk about the US war on terror, and a lot of my work in the last 20 years has been very much reporting on that war and critiquing it and saying what a complete moral abomination it's been. But so much of what the US has been doing post 9-11 was inspired 
openly by what Israel had been doing years before, not just in the use of language about how you describe Arabs, Muslims, they're all terrorists, words like collateral damage, all these kinds of terms Israel had been using long before the Americans. So the laboratory is not just the physical space of the West Bank or Gaza or Israel itself, it's also linguistic. It's a range of other things as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And why do you think Israel has been so distinguished in its uh, sort of counterinsurgency, in its weapons trade? Is it because, um, you know, it is it has from its outset been an intensely militarized state into which Western powers have poured billions of dollars um, and have used perhaps to um, sort of test out some of the technologies they hope to roll out on a much bigger scale in their own much bigger countries? Or is it for some other reason? Is it because it has mandatory conscription, because there's a kind of nation that's bought into the military industrial complex? Like, what makes Israel such a world leader in in the arms trade? Or is it not necessarily um, a world leader and you've just chosen to focus on its trade in your book? No, it's a world leader. <laughs> um, it is. Now, obviously, the world's biggest arms dealer is America by far. I mean, no country comes even close. So I'm not arguing now in the book that somehow Israel is the global sole leader of, of awful weapons and technology. They're not. But Israel is the top 10 in the top 10 arms dealers in the world. Uh, it's a tiny country population-wise, but it's the reason I think that's happened is some of the reasons we've got that you mentioned, which was it's a highly militarised society pretty much from day one, from 48. But also what's happened, particularly in the last 30, 40 years, but it's accelerated after 9-11, is that the Israeli intelligence units, it's one of them particularly called Unit 8200, which is a day-to-day, um, -day, its work is to monitor all elements of Palestinian life in the West Bank or Gaza or elsewhere, surveilling all communications, every piece of information or communication, which obviously these days is mobile phones, but obviously back in the day it was more analog, is listened to, controlled, monitored by Israel. But what's happened in the last years is that there's an encouragement within the Israeli military to develop the most sophisticated tools of surveillance, which can then be taken into the private sector after you may leave the military. But I think it's important to note that, and I say this a lot in the book, and was a real frustration in some ways in writing the book that in the last few years, some listeners will be aware, obviously, of NSO Group and Pegasus, you know, this spyware technology that many countries have used and abused to listen to dissidents or human rights activists or whatever, journalists. But what's often missed, and the key point is, these are not private companies that are doing this. They are private to an NSO Group is the most infamous example. It's a private company, yes, but essentially, it's the, it's the arm of the Israeli state. So what Israel is doing, from its perspective very cleverly, it uses these tools and technologies almost as a carrot to be held out to get international support, usually privately. So, for example, in the last five years, there's been Arab state after Arab straight state befriend Israel. To the Abraham Accords, the normalization. Abraham Accords, exactly. Now, all this is frankly, complete bollocks, because these are basically arms deals. This is what this relationship is about. If you ask the majority of people in UAE, I'm talking about citizens, or Bahrain, they're not particularly fond of Israel. There are some who love the idea that they can travel back and forth to Israel and maybe hang out on a Tel Aviv beach, sure. I'm sure those people exist. But in general, these are what Israel had been doing in the last 10, 15 years is holding out the allure of the most sophisticated spyware, technology, weapons, drones, etc. And that's really what got these countries over the line. That's what we'll get if it happens, Saudi Arabia over the line if that happens. The reason I mention this all is that I see this on the one hand very pragmatically but also very cynically, that when Israel, like I guess many countries, is befriending, I mean, I, I assessed in the book, at least 130 countries in the world in the last decades have bought some form of Israeli so-called defence equipment, spyware, drones. So the majority of countries in the world, essentially, democracies and dictatorships, that, as you say, there's a reason why there is an allure of Israel. I think a lot of countries, despite what they say publicly, including ones that are publicly against the occupation, 
critical of Israeli apartheid, whatever they're saying publicly, privately, the vast majority of them are desperate for Israeli spyware and technology and drones and missile defense shields, whatever it may be. Now, they're not just desperate for Israeli tech. They're also obviously desperate for American tech as well or German or French, not just Israeli. But the difference is that the French and the Germans are not as overt about advertising where these weapons were tested. The Americans spent a lot of the last 20 years openly saying American defense companies, Lockheed Martin, Raytheon and others, would openly say these weapons that we're selling you, world, is tested in Iraq and Afghanistan. It wasn't subtle. And in fact, a lot of that equipment ends up on the streets of American cities bought by American police departments. Um, so these police departments, which obviously already have a pretty awful racist history, have become all, even more militarized. So this is obviously happening in the US too, to be sure. But in Israel, they have almost a ready-made backyard of endless occupation, the West Bank and Gaza particularly, and so much of the advertising and marketing material which is used by Israeli companies and the Israeli government often has shots and images of Israeli drones being used over Gaza or the ability to use the most sophisticated spyware, whatever it may be, against um, what would be regarded as enemies or terrorists. It's proudly advertised that way. It's not really subtle. And a lot of countries are pretty desperate for that information and that technology, frankly. Yeah, and I think there's a lot in your response just now that I want to come to later, particularly the transition to um, software and cyber intelligence um, away from kind of more traditional battlefield kind of technologies. Mm. But before I do that, your your point about Israel's need to make friends just made me think about, um, well, I suppose your own um, desire or, or not to, to make friends. Because, um, you know, it's been almost 20 years since you first published a book about Israel, which was called My Israel Question, um, which prompted an enormous amount of controversy from what I can gather in Australia mm. where you live. Um, you know, Jewish uh, Australian newspapers engaging in smear campaigns, um, politicians writing to the vice chancellor of Melbourne University Publishing demanding that the publisher be sacked. Um, I'm sort of interested, just before we kind of get into the actual themes of the book itself, mm. from a personal perspective, um, you know, since writing that first book about Israel in 2006, you've gone on to write about all manner of things with far less professional and personal risk attached to them, disaster capitalism, you know, what have you. Why have you decided to circle back to Israel in this book at this moment? <laughs> There's so many reasons, but I mean, the simple background is I grew up in Australia, as you say, in Melbourne, which is a, the second biggest city in the country. And I grew up in a fairly typical Jewish liberal home. Israel was part of life, but it wasn't you know, I wasn't an Orthodox Jew, I wasn't religious. Israel was something that you just was expected to support because my family were killed in the Holocaust, a fairly typical Jewish story, sadly. And Israel was seen as a, as the, God forbid something happened again, there was somewhere for us Jews to go. I mean, that's what I was told pretty much from day one. And I guess when you're 10 or 12, you don't really think that much about that beyond just accepting it. And I think as years went on, like a lot of Jews then, but increasingly now, feel very uncomfortable with what we're expected to support or believe. Uncritical backing of Israel, demonization of Palestinians, um, Palestinians have no right to equal rights. I mean, I have Jewish family friends now who I don't see very often because I don't agree with them on this issue, but who would regularly kind of say, our lives are frankly more important. Our lives, meaning Jewish lives, are more important. Now, this is Listeners to Navarra won't be exactly shocked to hear that because I'm sure this is sadly part of the, so much of the debate in the establishment's Jewish community, a decades-long, what would you say, um, abuse of language, a deeply racist underpinning that has led to, I would argue, what's happening in Israel-Palestine now. Without the Jewish diaspora, this shit would not be happening. It's as simple as that to me. Obviously, the US is a key 
player here, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't even, I'm not even sure that's true anymore. I think like the Jewish diaspora is a pillar of support for the occupation. But I mean, we're vastly outnumbered by evangelical Christians who frankly couldn't give a damn if I live or died. Like if all true. Jewish, if all members of the Jewish diaspora, you know, were vaporized in the rapture or whatever tomorrow, um, evangelical Christian Zionists would continue to exist. I'm not suggesting that this isn't an important um, yeah. thing to be doing, but perhaps maybe the... Uh, Maybe what I feel as another, you know, uh, Jewish critic of Israel in the diaspora is not so much that like we are the be all and end all of Israel so much as that because of the nature and the identity political nature of discourse, um, political discourse, we have an outsized role to play uh, compared to the numbers that we have. For sure. No, I agree with that. And you know, in the last 20 years, as you say, I've written about this issue. And I think after that first book came out in 2006, which, as you said, caused a storm in Australia and also internationally was a bestseller. You know, there are attempts to try to get the book banned and pulped. I mean, just crazy stuff. When the message of the book was actually very moderate. I called for a two-state solution and said, I believe in a Jewish state. I mean, I don't believe either of those things anymore. But, I mean, it was pretty, I would think, moderate. I think the threat at the time was seen as not that I was the first Jewish person to say this. Of course I wasn't. Obviously I wasn't. But there, I think there was a threat of someone Jewish saying it when it was much more difficult to try to silence that person mm. than if they're non-Jewish or Muslim. You're right. right. I mean, you know, it's more difficult to silence. I mean, you can accuse me, as I have been and I still am, of anti-Semitism, which is nonsense. But, I mean, you know, that's an attempt to silence people. Anyway, and I think after that whole experience I decided to not just focus on this question. I decided to write about uh, the drug war and disaster capitalism. I mean, some of those trips, by the way, were pretty scary in Afghanistan and elsewhere. But yes, I was focusing on other issues. While at the same time, I kept on visiting Palestine every three or four years. I did reporting in you know, the West Bank and Gaza and then lived there between 2016 and 2020 in East Jerusalem with my partner who had got a job with Oxfam. And so I basically followed her to that job and she was working across Palestine and I I guess when I got there I mean obviously I already had my my views and insights about what was happening but felt like I wanted to try to explain the conflict as a journalist beyond just reporting what was happening in the conflict not that that's unimportant it's important you need journalists to say what happened today and tomorrow I get that but I increasingly saw a wider narrative how the occupation essentially was being exported and that to me is the key point here that what's happening in so many conflicts around the world as tragic as they are remain in that geographic space you know in 2015 i lived in south sudan which is a horrible horrendous conflict and but what's happening in south sudan stays in south sudan what's happening in many other conflicts around the world it doesn't minimize how horrible and the suffering by any means of course it doesn't but What's happening in Israel-Palestine now and, frankly, for a long time, this is what I wanted to write about in the book, is exported because the technology and tools that Israel uses is so desperately wanted by others. And I guess part of the book was partly saying that, but also, and, and investigating that, but also talking about the allure of many people and countries of Israel's ethno-nationalism, how attractive that is. The idea that you have not just the obvious examples of Hungary under Orban, who obviously is a frankly anti-Semite, who loves who loves Israel as it is under Netanyahu because he likes the idea of a strong man ruling over essentially non-Jews in Israel's case and non-Christians in Hungary's case. I mean, the most obvious example now is something like India with Modi, right, where India and Israel are very close for a good reason. They both view the idea of an ethno-nationalist dream as the ideal. In India, of course, it's Hindus, in Israel it's Jews. But more disturbingly, I was really concerned by what I saw, how often I was watching and writing about far-right support for Israel, far-right rallies where the Israeli flag is flown. It's not subtle. These are groups that traditionally hated Jews. I mean, the far right is not a friend of the Jewish people, let's face it. But they admire, I mean, I'm generalizing here, but many of them admire Israel. 
what it stands for, not because they want to live in a Jewish state. They don't. But they, and they have said this openly. I mean, the most infamous, I have a quote in the book a few years ago from Richard Spencer, you know, the alt-right so-called leader who goes, I'm a white Zionist. Mm. You know, he admires what Israel is doing because obviously he doesn't want to live in a Jewish state, he doesn't like Jews very much, but he loves the idea that Israel says, I don't care what the world thinks. Yeah, We don't care about human rights. We don't care about multilateralism. What we care about is a Jewish majority state and the world can basically bugger off. And he wants to create, obviously, in his worldview, a sort of Christian ethno-nationalist dream in America or elsewhere. And that's that's the scary allure of Israel to so many other people around the world. Sure. So I guess what you're saying is that there's a dual kind of export going on. There's a kind of the, the arms themselves will only be in and, and the techniques that Israel is exporting will only be in demand if the ideologies remain popular as well. The ideology of ethno-nationalism, of occupation and, you know, blockade yeah. and all of the tactics and kind of the ideologies and the tactics that that perform those ideologies um, have to be in demand for Israel's weaponry to also be in demand. So there has to be this kind of yes. dual kind of ideological export at the same time as the material export. I think that's true. And I think, sadly, and this is one reason I wrote the book, I don't go into great detail about it in there, but it's something I, I write about and I obviously want to talk, speak about now the book is coming out. I do see that the appeal of Israel is actually increasing. There's sort of a, there's two things happening. On the one hand, it's true that in your country, the UK, but particularly in the US, there's a civil war going on in the Jewish community. It's not a secret. It's happening. It's, and I, and I, encourage, I think it's great. I support it. I encourage it. It's necessary. There needs to be that that civil war of sorts in the Jewish community about challenging the kind of archaic, um, racist, old way of viewing not just Palestinians but anyone who's non-Jewish. That's an important thing. But I also see in a lot large parts of the world, not just the far right, but as I said, India and elsewhere, the allure of the, the ethno-nationalist vision. There is no country in the world that has been, in inverted commas, more successful as an ethno-nationalist state than Israel. None. It's 75 years old and it appeals to a lot of countries as it is a model, not just how it treats its Palestinian population under occupation or in Israel itself, but also how it views critics. You know, they have, and I have a lot of this in the book, that India in some ways is very instructive at the moment, that Modi's been in power now for close to 10 years. India is now the biggest population country in the world, overtook China just recently. It's nominally a democracy, although I would argue it's a quasi-democracy. It's an increasingly Hindu fundamentalist state. And you have Indian officials, very senior BJP officials, openly talking about how they admire what Israel's doing in the West Bank. They admire the settlement progress. They want to copy what Israel is doing. Now, I don't argue that what India wants to do in, say, Kashmir is simply because of what Israel is doing. Of course, that's not true. But there's a reason why both nations are so close. India buys massive amounts of weaponry from Israel. Modi and Netanyahu have a political affinity ideologically. Huge numbers of Indians have been spied on by Israeli spyware. These things don't happen accidentally. Now, sure, India wants the technology. Israel can provide it. Okay. But it's actually a lot more than that. So you now have the world's biggest democracy with the world's biggest population at a time where so much of the West, Britain, Australia, America, is romancing Modi and India because they're not China at a time where India is descending, in my view, and not just my view, but many Indian friends of mine are saying, into a deeply disturbing potential future. And there's open talk about genocides against Muslims. I mean, this by senior members of the Modi regime. Now, in any rational moment, that should cause pause at best and yet countries like India so countries like Israel I should say are increasingly in line with India because they see a political affinity with each other mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's it's interesting to me about how um, just kind of from a not ideological more a tactical standpoint um how Israel's role in the kind of global military industrial complex has shaped the nature of global warfare and global policing you know there was this um there was 
uh, this moment when, um, I mean, this is a British political broigus that we don't necessarily need to go into in much detail, but uh, a politician mistakenly suggested that Derek Chauvin, um, the police officer who killed George Floyd, had learned the technique from an Israeli, mm. um, you know, police exchange. That wasn't the case that transpired. But we do also know, and you set out in the book, that such training programs and exchanges between US and Israeli police forces and also Israeli and UK police forces do happen. Um, and, and also that there's this enormous flow of, of, of arms. Um, how, from your perspective, has Israel's kind of hegemony in the, in the arms trade and in the kind of, um, yeah, global military industrial complex shaped other countries' approaches to, to warfare? A lot. I think particularly the US, but you're right, the UK and India, just speaking of them, that you've had, particularly since 9-11, a huge amount of so-called information sharing when a lot of Indian, British and American police have gone to Israel for so-called training, to learn tactics. I mean, you have senior American police officers talking about how much they admire what Israel is doing, how much they admire the Israeli police forces, despite the fact that Israeli police, as with the American police, have a pretty horrible racist record. And as I say in the book, there's no argument that the American police force are racist in a place because of Israeli training. Obviously, that's not the case. But the American police force has its own history of racism, which goes very, very far back, of course. But I do think that when you are exchanging that kind of information and you see how a close ally behaves against what they view as an unwanted population, you are inspired by that. You're inspired by what they're doing. You're also inspired by the fact that Israel gets away with it. Like this to me, the impunity is such a big part of this. Like that word is so central to how Israel has become a global leader because a lot of nations that admire it, individuals that admire it say, Israel doesn't give a shit. No one's stopping it. No one can stop it, seemingly. No nation has real interest in stopping it. And the nations normally that you think maybe could have no desire to because they're so keen to be friends with Israel for, you know, 20 reasons. Where's that going to come from, the pressure? America, hardly the EU. They'll not issue a press release being critical. Wow. The Arab countries are now in bed with Israel. So... I mean, this this is what leaves the Palestinians, frankly, in a deeply problematic place for them. I'm not saying, I don't mean that that's their own fault. I'm saying, like, this is the political space they find themselves in. Very, very few friends. So I think that the inspiration that Israel has given to many other countries well before 9-11, particularly since 9-11, has a lot to do with not just tactics and tools, but also, as I said before, language how you speak about groups you don't like, how you demonize them, how you try to make them invisible, how you try to make them, you know, uh, non-humans. Like that is so central to the Israel's so-called war on terror. They don't necessarily call it that, but that's basically what it has been for decades. And I talk about this in the book that, you know, Israel's invasion of Lebanon in the early 80s really, although Israel had been doing horrible things before then, that really was a huge playbook. The language that was used against Palestinians in Lebanon that Israel conjured up in international media really was a massive inspiration on how the US framed its war on terror post 9-11. And I mean, some American officials have said that. It's not particularly just my opinion. I mean, it is my opinion, but it's more than that. And I think that, so therefore, the way that Israel is able to not just monetize the occupation, but also inspire others to, in my view, behave badly. It's not just because they want to sell weapons. That's obviously part of it. But it's this belief of, I guess, a belief of kind of dominance and arrogance, and which which is stems from impunity. Is there a sense in which, um, you know, Israel's development of of its enormous kind of military capability, which it claims is for security? I mean, it, it mm. sort of is in a sense, is is actually more about its economic security at this point. Like, could Israel actually exist without being an enormous kind of testing ground and exporter of weapons at this point? Like, is it even possible to imagine a transition to an Israel that isn't 
primarily reliant on weapons exports. I think there was like a contract you refer to later in the late in the book, um, a, a sort of NSO contract, which um, perhaps officials uh, in an importing country, perhaps the US, I can't quite recall, are trying to block. And uh, one of the judges that is kind of um, adjudicating this case within Israel says like, this is actually hugely economically uh, kind of make or break for for, for the state mm. and like you know the extent to which israel's economic viability is reliant on weapons makes it almost impossible to imagine how we could have a different kind of israel that is that has other kinds of trade and services as its primary form of economic activity you know yeah i think it's a big part of it and i see very much increasingly that this these industries are also an insurance policy that i think israel and certain politicians have sort of admitted this publicly, that there I think is an awareness in the less hardline ideological Israeli elite that a lot of the world doesn't like the occupation. Now, BDS and others hasn't really had a massive economic hit on Israel, to be sure. It's been hits here and there, but that could change. There could be a, a growing civil rights movement around the world to oppose Israeli apartheid, boycotts, divestment, sanctions. But the defence industry really is, to some extent, a perfect insurance policy because so many nations around the world are unlikely to stop wanting that technology, those tools. Now, could other countries provide that? Yes, I suppose there's no reason why they couldn't. Could France or America or Germany or China? And I talk about this in the book, right, that one thing that I found really disturbing in the last years is there is now a complete Western obsession with our apparent concern that people in China are being repressed. Now, I'm not defending Chinese repression. I think it's horrible. And there's undoubted repression within Chinese borders against Uyghurs, against a range of other groups. There's no doubt about that. But the reason I think that's the way that we report this in the West is a problem is that a, until about four or five years ago, China was our best friend. I mean, look at the British press literally four or five years ago and you have British officials, senior British officials going to areas of China and getting training in counterterrorism. This is a, four or five years ago. And the reason I mention all this in the book is that I think it's about calling out the hypocrisy. Israel has supported far more nations in its repression than China has by a mile. China is definitely increasingly exporting its repressive technology, which must be opposed, and I completely condemn that. But somehow that technology is horrible and must be opposed. But Israeli repressive tech, that's fine. Mm -hmm. What's wrong with that? We should get a piece of that. So in other words, it depends somehow who's selling their repressive technology, right? Yeah. So the, I'm talking about how the media frames that. Sure. Is it because China is the only state which has the ability to compete with Israel in the quality of its surveillance technology? Or America does too, I guess. I mean, America, I suppose, does. Um, but of but course America's America buying is... Israeli like, surveillance technology. Yes. Like, Absolutely. America's reliant on it. Like, that, you know, you, yes. we, we, we saw this kind of secret deal. I mean, we can talk more about this in more detail later, but like the US has been buying Pegasus despite 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 publicly criticizing it yes. <laughs> as a threat because again right and i think also it's it's worth saying that and i say this in the book because obviously you now when you write a book you don't want to get sort of behind what might happen in the news cycle it's always a bit nerve-wracking doing this that even if tomorrow pegasus and nso group shut down pegasus gets dismantled the problem doesn't go anywhere it simply goes to various other com companies. And even in the last sort of six months, I mentioned some of these in the book, there are so many other Israeli surveillance and spyware companies that are going to replace NSO when they go over. The reason I mention that is the problem is not a particular company. The problem is the broader picture of just in terms of, say, spyware or hacking tools. No one wants to regulate because everyone wants a piece of it. Yeah. Right, everyone wants a piece of it. Yeah, I just want to think 
kind of a bit more specifically about the privatization of the um, arms trade, um, which is something that a lot of Navarro readers will be quite aware of because I, in my own reporting, um, my own articles reporting, have been covering um, Palestine Action, which is a direct action group that has been targeting uh, factories owned by Elbit Systems, which is Israel's largest private arms company mm. um so we know that the the arms trade in israel is 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 becoming increasingly privatized and you write about how um that has happened kind of from the 1960s onwards and how private companies like elbit have begun to catch up in scale um, and almost like overtake the size of publicly owned arms companies um mm. and and you write about like how although the occupation has been privatized quote unquote um for a palestinian living in in, you know, the West Bank, for example, there is no difference um, between whether it's an IDF soldier um, checking them through a checkpoint or a G1 secure solutions guard, for example. Um, but is that really true? And, you know, has privatization not actually affected the nature of Israel's military occupations? For one thing, surely a G1 Secure Solutions Guard is going to be far less, well, um, accountable, perhaps, for and therefore prone to kind of more extreme tactics um, than than a than an agent of the state. Even though obviously we know that IDF soldiers act with enormous amounts of brutality and impunity, it could be worse still. Yeah, I mean, I, it could be worse, but the rate of prosecution for IDF soldiers is you know close to zero. So, I mean, the reason I guess I put that in the book was partly based on some of the reporting I did when I was living there. Um, and not just because Palestinians, of course, wouldn't know the difference because they, as far as they're concerned, if you're, a, if you're a soldier at a checkpoint, whether you're private or public, who cares? You're likely to be awful and repressive. But practically speaking, there's no accountability for either. I mean, they're literally, I mean, I, I don't think, I have no statistics or evidence that suggests it makes a damn bit of difference. Now, it doesn't mean, therefore, that there's not a greater desire to privatise parts of the occupation by the Israeli state. There are, and there are growing numbers of companies, especially guards protecting Israeli uh, settlements in the West Bank, including the most extreme ones. Obviously, the IDF is there too, but also it's often private security. Again, an Israeli settler doesn't really care because as far as they're concerned, it's their right to the land and then, you know, someone's protecting them. Sure. And a Palestinian who may be, you know, going across their vision won't know a difference. But should we care? I, I mean, I, it might not make a difference to a Palestinian passing through a checkpoint. But, you know, for example, um, the private intelligence firm Black Cube, which Donald Trump, when he was president, um, contracted to investigate uh, the aides of Barack Obama, who'd been tied to the Iran nuclear deal. Or perhaps that was when yeah. he was a candidate for presidency. I can't quite recall. Um, mm. You know, Black Cube claimed to have had access to and eyes and ears in uh, Libya's state-owned oil company when when it was operating um, in Libya yeah. after the overthrow of Gaddafi in 2011. Like these are places where states potentially can't penetrate, and you know private companies have have potentially far more uh, far-reaching tentacles into um, other private companies, into citizens' lives um, than than state agencies do. No, definitely. No, no. Let, let me explain what I mean. There is obviously a, a massive difference between the state doing, say, intelligence and, for example, a black cube. And I talk about a company like that a lot in the book. But that's mostly happening outside of Israel-Palestine. Yeah. Like a black cube itself, and which just doesn't make it any better, but a black cube, for listeners who don't know, essentially was founded by former Mossad people, uh, senior leaders of Mossad to kind of be a private intelligence service so you could hire them to get intel on your enemies, uh, etc. So, yes, the growing, I mean, I see that more as a monetization of the occupation, though, using decades and decades of occupation as a way to advertise your wares, saying either explicitly or, or implicitly, we can control all Palestinian lives, what they say, what they do, what they read, who they're talking to, who they're screwing. We know all that information. We can blackmail people. I mean, this is the nature of what occupation actually means. It's corrupted the Israeli soul so deeply that no aspect of it is untouched. However, we can also use that to your advantage, client X. We can get information no one else can. We can listen to calls that no one else can. We can put spies in various places. I don't mean that in kind of a fantastical way that somehow Israel's got magical powers, 
I mean, obviously Americans, a lot of examples of American companies, uh, former military, using private intelligence as well. It's not unique to just Israel. But the nature of monetizing the occupation is you're essentially using intelligence gathering, facial recognition, biometric details, all these tools and technologies which are being used in Palestine against Palestinians and then selling that around the world to oppress other people. And I think, A, a lot of people don't realize that and I think don't realize that how the occupation has been monetized. And I don't think... And I obviously thought a lot about this in the writing of the book. There obviously are other conflicts that have been monetized, as I said, Iraq and Afghanistan being the most obvious in our adult life. But I think the Israeli occupation has been going on for much longer. And I think there are so many companies, as I said before, they're private companies only in theory. Most of these companies, including Black Cube, NSO Group and many others, are often arms of the state. They work very much hand-in-hand with the state. So if, for example, Israel has an enemy and wants to find out intelligence, information, details, they may well use a so-called private company to get that information. Just like the US often use Blackwater private security in Iraq and Afghanistan, it's one less level of so-called accountability, but ultimately it becomes an arm of the state. So does it matter? Yes, it matters that the occupations become monetized and exported but within Palestine itself on a day-to-day basis, I don't think for most Palestinians it makes much of a difference. But, yes, the trend is increasingly privatised. Sure. Um, and can you maybe just, like, tell us a little bit before I ask you further questions about it, about this um, shift towards surveillance technologies away from, you know, exporting uh, physical arms, drones, tanks, whatever, towards um, exporting technology, when that's happened, how that's happened, why that's happened? Is it in response to demands of clients? Is it in response to the changing nature of the Palestinian um, liberation movement? Tell us about that shift briefly. I mean, certainly it's worth saying that Israel still does export huge amounts of hardware. In other words, missile de- hardware, missile defense shields, drones, you know, physical things that, you know, you and I can can maybe see. But Definitely in the last 15 years, as technology itself, surveillance technology has become much more sophisticated, there is now this slew of spyware companies, hacking companies, many of whom, as I said, have worked in Israeli intelligence. They've therefore moved into the sort of so-called private sector. And the demand for this equipment is so off the chart. I mean, the country that's used Israeli spyware more than any other is Mexico. Mexico. Mexico was using initially to go after drug cartel lords, so they said, and now it's still used under the current government, despite being a nominally left-wing regime in Mexico. It's still used all the time by Mexicans against dissidents, writers, journalists, human rights activists. So there is such, in the reasons Israel has developed this technology is A, because it was often um, devised by individuals who spent their day-to-day life in the military monitoring Palestinians 24-7, being able to blackmail them potentially if there's a, I give these examples in the book, that it's it's a very common ugly tactic to blackmail Palestinians who, for example, are having an affair, uh, maybe married to a, someone of the opposite sex but is having, you know, shagging someone of the same sex. In other words, that Israel can use leverage against someone and what happens is as Palestinians often are told, you have a choice because Israel has heard all their communication and seen their text messages. You can either keep doing what you're doing or you can, and, or we'll, and we'll reveal it to your family and friends or you can work for us. And that kind of years and years of experience, so to speak, by Israeli intelligence officers is then turned into a, I guess, a, into a private company that can be then sold internationally. NSO groups are most infamous. There are many, many others. So I think the transitions happened as technologies improve the last 15 years, and now Israel has probably got the top, t- not just they are the 10, 10th biggest arms dealer in the world, but Israel now has probably the top one, two, or three spyware companies in the world in terms of number of companies that are being uh, selling this equipment, the amount of clients they have, and we're talking dozens and dozens and dozens of, and again, no one wants to regulate it. So until it gets regulated which I'm not that optimistic will happen, 
this problem is just going to keep getting worse because everyone wants a piece of it. Sure. There's two questions here. I mean, the first that you just mentioned is about regulation. Um, I do wonder about whether regulation is going to like even you know, be possible um, given the, the the like need that states have for these powerful tools. Like why would states willingly give them up? It's not that, you know, um, the US would regulate Israel to keep in check its uh it's spiraling spyware industry because it would be it would be a self-defeating move i mean shoshana zuboff talks in her book about surveillance capitalism um she says that a democratic surveillance society is an existential and political impossibility um surely you know if we're going to have resistance to um the kind of surveillance technologies that israel exports like pegasus that's not going to be undertaken by states it's going to be undertaken by Mm. citizens yeah, I would mostly agree with that. And I think it's obviously important also to say that the, the issue of the ubiquitous nature of spyware and how, as you said, many states want to get access to it, and this is something Edward Snowden has talked about, is it's almost like one has to imagine kind of an alternate internet, an alternate kind of communication where the current forms of communication that we use, our phones and WhatsApp or Signal, whatever we may be using, to communicate with friends, family, or whatever, uh, are breachable. They are not secure, regardless of what you do, regardless of how you try to protect yourself if you're someone who does. And I would agree. I mean, but I I guess one caveat to that would be there are examples in the last 100 years where the most destructive weapons in the world, nuclear weapons, chemical weapons, the vast, vast majority of the world have signed regulations that say we don't use them. Now, obviously, there's their exceptions, Israel, India, America, China, and others. So I'm not idealizing those regulatory systems in the past, but there are frameworks that have outlawed to the vast bulk of the world chemical weapons and nuclear weapons. There are holdouts who don't accept those regulations and won't sign on the dotted line. But you know, you, one could have said 100 years ago, no one's ever going to want to give up chemical weapons. One could have said after 1945, who's going to want to give up nuclear weapons? Well, the majority of the world has given has not even given up, but has refused to even imagine wanting to get nuclear weapons. That's the vast, vast bulk of the world. So I'm not an idealist about regulation, let me assure you, but I do think it is, yes, it has to come from civil society, absolutely, but I do think that there is at least a possibility of trying to push for at least some form of regulatory framework around spyware. It ain't going to be perfect. But I do think that if we don't even imagine what it might look like, then we are talking about indefinite Wild West. Yeah. What do you make of the kind of increasing number of shots that are being fired between Israel and its, um, you know, normal allies like the US, like the UK? You know, GCHQ has called out NSO Group and Pegasus. So has the US, despite secretly signing a contract with the company um, itself. Like, do you see this as a genuine concern for the, um, like, the possibility of these technologies and their their ability to undermine democracy? Or is this a kind of um, diplomatic uh, war between two two powers, Israel on the one hand, and uh, the US, UK, Australia, um, New Zealand, and Canada, who are are part of this Five Eyes intelligence sharing network? You know, is it that we're seeing a kind of fracture within the kind of... um, normal diplomatic allegiances between Israel and other Western powers because it's become almost too powerful in the cybersecurity space and that it's therefore um, uh, isolating itself against, you know, Five Eyes and and other Western powers that are actually becoming threatened by Israel. I see it like that, actually. I very much say, and I say this in the book, and I've been thinking a lot about this in the last while because I think it's becoming more obvious. I don't think GCHQ... The NSA in America are particularly concerned about the human rights of their own citizens or global citizens. They they think Israeli surveillance tech is getting too powerful for its boots and they want to knock it down a few pegs. Now, as you say, they're doing that while at the same time still using the technology themselves. I think they very much, both when I say they, I mean the US and UK particularly, they are really keen to develop their own spyware industries much more than exists. The Americans have one, the British 
haven't developed it particularly much at all, and they would like to. And Israel is a threat to that. Yes, Israel is a close ally of the UK and America. As you said, there's the Five Eyes intelligence sharing network, which I discuss in the book quite a lot. And Israel is not a part of that, but they are nominally the sixth member, unofficially the sixth kind of partner in a way. But yes, they are very, they being those five nations, despite being Israel's in some ways closest friends in the world, think that Israeli technology is becoming too invasive, but more importantly, um, curtailing their own power as five intelligence sharing nations. So when the Biden administration, as you rightly said, sanctioned NSO group, but also was using it, I mean, apart from the fact that that's maybe that the left hand didn't quite know what the right hand was doing in, you know, in the massive government bureaucracy, it's possibly that's what was happening rather than, you know, Biden himself knowing what the hell was going on. But I do think that was more about the idea that America has, Israel was one of its biggest targets of surveillance in the world, Israel. In other words, America and Israel have massive spying networks on each other. Huge. And they're doing that because they're friends, but they also don't really trust each other. So, which might sound bizarre, but that's the reality. So America has, as far as we know, at least 400 people who spend every day in the NSA working on spying on Israel, at least. That's a lot of people spying on one of your closest allies in the world. And the idea that Israeli surveillance technology could potentially supersede or challenge American spyware and military hegemony is a problem. And therefore, the tool that America is using to curtail that is so-called sanctions, which they claim is about protecting the human rights of citizens around the world. It's bullshit. It's not mm. about that at all. Mm. Well, I guess it is. It's both. It's it's about protecting their citizens from spying by the Israeli government, as well as protecting America's economic interests against a yeah. potential Israeli corporate monopoly in this space, basically. Yes. Um, and yes. therefore, a co- not just a corporate monopoly, but a diplomatic monopoly because of what you've said already about how Israel uses its arms exports and kind of related military exports to uh, to, to win, fre- to, to, to gain friends um, around yes. the world. Um, but I, I wonder just how much um, quickly... Um, how much you think Israel's expansion of um, its security industry and, and and software such as Pegasus is about not just um, is is about importing data from those softwares back into Israel for its own security purposes? Like how much is Israel mining the data that it gets from software like Pegasus? You you talk about how closely aligned these companies are with the state. Like if for example, Mexico buys Israeli um, software um, and uses it against drug cartels or whatever else. Um, is is Israel able to use any of that data for its own security purposes? Can it like does the does the kind of software flow have a kind of back channel back into Israel? I mean, I, I'm not sure yes. how this works. Yes, no, the short answer is absolutely, and that's of course the advantage that Israel has that these companies themselves, as I said, are arms of the state. So when NSO as Pegasus and other companies like that are sold into many countries where Israel doesn't have much influence or presence. The ability to gain information, it's called like a, it's a backdoor within the system, is what the Israeli state has. So, for example, UAE or states that, I mean, the UAE and Israel are now apparently best of friends, but for a while they weren't. And many other countries around the world but you know, aren't particularly necessarily even friendly with Israel. I mean, there's some states that have, I mean, Indonesia, for example, and um Bangladesh, Indonesia doesn't even recognize Israel as a state. They bought Israeli surveillance technology. Now, I don't know exactly the nature of all the information Israel's getting back about that, but you can be rest assured that they are getting information about Indonesian views, opinions, ideas. That's that that's I mean, that's central to it. So yes, I think Israel is very cleverly not just using these companies as arms of the state but also gaining invaluable information from them because ultimately Israel's intelligence services is regarded after the NSA in America as the second, I mean, some see it as the most superior in the world. I suggest the NSO is, but so NSA. But Israel is basically, you know, the second most sophisticated intelligence gathering country in the world. And... They gain that information from somewhere. It's often from companies that are basically present in countless countries around the world. Mm-hmm. 
bringing this back to Palestine, um, I suppose I'm interested in, as Israeli uh, weapons and, and sort of military and surveillance software companies become more embedded in other contexts, um, such as Mexico, such as uh, the US, um, such as the UK indeed, um, is there is there a, a a chance that uh, Palestine will become less of a central laboratory for the testing of these systems because there are so many other like testing grounds now, um, making foreign states less invested in the maintenance of uh, the occupation and of Israeli apartheid. I mean, this is a kind of weird silver lining, but I don't know whether you would yeah. identify that. I wish that was the case. <laughs> That's not my sense. And I fear that, in fact, at the moment it's going to be getting a lot worse before it might get better. There, you're right. Obviously, there are other battlegrounds or laboratories that exist in the world. It's not, you know, not the only one in the world is Palestine. Of course, that's not true. But I do think that based on arms sales in the last years, the prevalence of these technologies and how many countries they're found, the increasing numbers of countries that they're found, in fact, the appeal of the Israeli technology, uh, spyware, various other tools, in fact, is increasing. They're still, it hasn't reached its peak. I don't see that at all. Um, it doesn't mean other uh, locations of war can't also, or conflict can't also be used as testing grounds. But, you know, when was the last time that, I don't know, the conflict in Sudan or South Sudan or other places was a testing ground? The war in Ukraine is a testing ground at the moment, Russia's war in Ukraine. There's lots of companies that are testing new weapons there. I mean, that's been written about and I didn't talk about that much in the book, but there are, there are certain... Um, certainly American defense companies that were left sad at the end of 20 years of Iraq and Afghanistan who openly said before the Ukraine war started, we're looking for new new avenues here, for new, for new territories. I mean, I'm not saying the war obviously started because Putin invaded Ukraine, you know, criminally and horribly, but Ukraine has become a massive testing ground for new weapons. So, yes, could be Palestine, could be Ukraine, but actually it's a lot less places than you would imagine. So I do think Palestine will likely, sadly, remain that kind of testing ground for quite a long time because also the occupation, in fact, is deepening. I think Israel is on, and you know, nothing is ever set and there's, you know, nothing is ever you know, set in stone, but I think Israel's on a very, very dangerous trajectory and the fear that I have, and I'm not the only one who does, is that we are moving towards the possibility of a second Nakba, mm -hmm. uh, which would be, yeah, potentially accepted and supported by a lot, of, a lot of people or countries in the world. I suppose this brings me on, though, to the last thing I wanted to consider with you, which is what's happening currently within Israel um, and the escalation of or the deepening of ethno-nationalism under this far-right government. Um, which is, you know, possibly its most openly sort of fascistic and genocidal to date, um, as well as the the popularization of uh, the understanding of Israel as an apartheid, um, as an apartheid state, and and potentially, um, you know, the the uh, the move to make Israel into a pariah state, um, like Russia has been, like other countries um, have become. Um, I wonder whether you think that, I mean, clearly there has been a shift in opinion on Israel. That's just undeniable, particularly amongst the demographic, which you and I both belong to, Jewish people in the diaspora, particularly amongst the, the largest contingent of that uh, sort of demographic, American Jews. Um, to what extent do you think that this kind of shift in opinion towards Israel um, and the realization of its increasing illiberalism um, will test its ability to sell arms? You know, one of the things that you, I suppose the premise of your book is that Israel boasts about battle testing its its weapons. But to what extent can Israel boast about that still, um, at least so publicly, when, you know, the the ethics of its of of its kind of the battles that it's undertaking are being increasingly uh i don't know questioned not not that they haven't been questioned throughout the state's existence but like now to a kind of maybe increasingly critical point including by israeli 
Jews. I mean, actually, that's kind of questionable. I don't actually know that Israeli Jews are really questioning Israeli apartheid so much as just, you know, uh, changes to uh, laws that will affect them and them only. There is a concern amongst a lot of Israel supporters, both within Israel itself, but also internationally, of this shift that you talk about. There's no doubt uh, the growing acceptance that Israel is committing apartheid. Of course, those people don't accept that as a premise, but the idea that that is generally talked about, you know, you have Human Rights Watch and Amnesty and various other groups talking about, you know, you see the word Israeli apartheid much more in the public domain. I think in the last 20 years, particularly 10 years, I think a lot of the public opinion, in my view, has shifted a lot more um, in spite the mainstream media, not because of it. I think social media has played a massive, massive part amongst other demographic trends. But at the same time, yes, that public opinion in certain countries is shifting, but also at the moment at least, with very few exceptions, this doesn't extend to the level of Prime Minister, President, Defence Minister, serious bureaucratic elites. It hasn't. I mean... I can. I mean, it doesn't mean that it can't, and, in, and it won't. No, and in fact, some states are moving in the opposite direction, such as the UK moving to ban BDS from public bodies. So you know, which it's is kind insane. Of, exactly. Yeah, which is insane. Yes. But it's also a kind of uh, a sort of pre- preemptive strike against attempts yes. to isolate Israel economically um, as a pariah state. Whereas more like, and, and therefore, effective attempts to 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 sort of to cut Israel off as an arms supplier have come, you know, not from governments, because as you say, governments are so heavily invested in this um, and that, it, that it's impossible, almost impossible for them to extricate themselves. You know, some states might not actually be able to viably conduct their own kind of security and military operations without Israeli um, goods. Yeah. But so the, the resistance is, is coming from what I can see, not from states, but from citizens and, and activists you know yes. we've seen a contract actually you know palestine action not to sort of hmm. make this too much about that particular group but they you know they have potentially cost the israeli israeli military um hundreds of millions of pounds in contracts with the british government which is becoming increasingly reluctant to award um elbert systems contracts because they are an unreliable supplier yeah. you know th- these yeah. are purely economic decisions being made as a result of action that's taken not by states of their own accord but like under increasing um in- extreme pressure you know from activist groups like that seems to me like the only way forward I agree. And look, civil society, whatever that means in different countries, is usually A, where resistance begins. It always has historically. And the comparison has to be South Africa, in a way, during apartheid, when for decades and decades and decades, the vast, vast bulk of the world embraced them, loved them, worked with them, trained them. I mean, Israel, of course, as I say extensively in the book, was one of South African apartheid's key allies right to the end. When the whole world had given up on them, Israel was standing by their side. And I think that was not just a defense agreement where they were selling each other weapons, but it was ideological. So I guess the question and the concern is that is enough people around the world or governments moving in a direction where, yes, public opinion in certain states are increasingly pro-Palestine, critical of Israel, but if more and more countries are embracing ethno-nationalism, as I said before, the most populous country in the world, I'm not saying every Indian supports Israel, of course that's not true, but in the biggest country in the world population-wise, Israel is very popular and increasingly popular in a nation where for decades they were much more supportive of Palestine. I guess the reason I'm mentioning all this is that a lot of this depends on where global direction and politics goes, and I worry that the allure of Israeli not just Israeli apartheid, but the allure of occupation and the tools used to maintain it, it's hard to see that fading until there is serious economic pressure or pain applied to Israel. Until that happens, and I think it can happen, but it feels now a long way away. Sure. And that's going to require a state, right, probably to be the first to implement boycotts and it's not going to be america right it's going to be i don't know so it could be south africa actually which is one of the more openly critical states in the world against israel at the moment 
the cover of your book is uh, it looks like sort of uh, a bomb being detonated um, in, in Gaza. In Gaza, mm. okay, yeah. Um, and and this is this is really a good example of like the theatre of war and how um, Israel might use images exactly like the one on on the cover of your book to sell its technology. Um, but I suppose I wonder whether um, we might see and there's something quite sort of um, convenient for Israel about this transition into um, technologies that are not so theatrical. That are actually you know you couldn't depict NSO hacking a Palestinian's phone on the cover of your book without some like yeah. quite crap stock imagery. Um, yes. And so I, we avoided that. We've, we yeah. avoided that. Yes. Yeah. But you did because you could, because there's still like primarily yeah. hardware that's like being exported. But eventually, yeah. you know, in like 30 years' time, it probably will be primarily software. Um, and so I, I sort of wonder whether um, there's something in this for Israel, which is like possibly the most PR uh, sort of expert nation in the world about um, sort of transitioning away from um, visible, visible kind of as in transitioning towards exporting technologies whose impacts are less like visibly brutal um, and and towards technologies that are, that are kind of almost preemptive of violence, preemptive of resistance. You know, you give this oh. quote in the um, chapter of, um, of the book, which is about Israeli surveillance um, from uh, an Israeli human rights lawyer saying, because of surveillance tech, a country can avoid massacring protesters now. Today, you're able to identify and stop surveillance and stop um, surveillance of the next Nelson Mandela before he even knows he's Nelson Mandela. You know, there's something yeah. really interesting about how um, maybe Israel is moving towards uh, a kind of less like visible forms of repression that are still equally in demand, if not more in demand, in order to both continue being uh, the number one, um, you know, exporter of arms and su surveillance technology in the world, whilst avoiding the reputational damage that might come with it increasingly? Yeah, look, it's a good question. And I mean, it's something that I, I think is obviously possible. But I think one area we didn't didn't talk about this but i think it's something i only mentioned in the book in passing but i think it's really relevant here is that as i think much more of the world increasingly faces the climate crisis and i fear many nations won't particularly address it either very well or they're in denial or anything between the two more and more western states are going to be facing an influx of climate refugees it's already happening the us uh certainly my country a range of other states and I think it's very likely that a lot of those nations are going to be looking for ways to try to deter those migrants, keep them out, build high walls, surveillance. And a country they're going to keep coming back to for assistance in that is Israel. Now, I'm not saying that, again, that's inevitable or, you know, that the, the die is cast there, but that's what I fear. So whether that would be uh, surveillance tech that you can see physically or not, in some ways, it may be difficult then to make a really sexy cover in 20, 30 years. That could be a problem. But I think ultimately there is going to be still a very uh, appealing allure of Israeli surveillance and repressive tech unless there is a delegitimization of Israeli occupation. And I think although that's happening at the civil society level, it's not yet happening even close to at the political or mostly media elite level either. Well, thankfully, we are not the media elites. Um, Anthony Lowenstein. <laughs> thank God. Thank God. Um, Anthony Lowenstein, thank you so much for joining us. The Palestine Laboratory, How Israel Exports the Technology of Occupation Around the World, is published by Verso on the 23rd of May, I believe, and I, I highly recommend it to everyone. Thanks so much for joining us, Anthony. Thanks so much for having me, Rivka. Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navarro Media from just £1 a month. A regular donation helps us to plan our future and be even more ambitious with our coverage of news, politics, culture and the really big ideas that you'll always find on our podcasts. So please consider joining us and become a regular supporter from just £1 a month by heading to navarromedia.com forward slash support.